you please turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. If you're using one of the few Bibles, you can turn to page 65. It gets you right there. We'll be looking at um, chapters 25 to 31 today. Relationships are best cultivated in person. What I mean by that is that relationships develop and grow when two people actually spend time together in person. Because relationships are about being together, doing things together, sharing one another's company, enjoying life together. And though technology today allows us to build and maintain relationships from far away, long-distance relationships are actually quite hard to foster, aren't they? I hate to say it, but I'm not a very good long-distance friend. If you ever should move away or I should ever move away, uh, trust that I will remember you and that I will think about you, I will still love you, but you probably will not hear much from me again. And it's not because I don't love you, it's just because... It's hard to maintain relationship, isn't it? Some people are very good at it. I'm not. Because relationships is about being together. It's hard to spend time together. It's hard to enjoy one another's company. It's hard to do life together when two individuals are separated by thousands of miles, even hundreds of miles, maybe even tens of miles. Relationships happen and grow and develop in person. In our study of the book of Exodus, we've seen in recent weeks that God after he had rescued his people Israel from slavery, he brought them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, and he made a covenant with them, a close, binding, even intimate covenant relationship with them. God would be Israel's God, and they would be his people. But how would this relationship, how would this covenant develop into something deep, personal, even intimate, as God intended, if God were transcendent, if he were removed, if he were far away up in the heavens. Well, as part of God's plan to live in covenant relationship with his people, God provided his people Israel detailed instructions to build something called the tabernacle so that the covenant, that he, the covenant relationship he had made with them might bloom and grow and prosper according to his purpose. And we're going to look today at the building of the tabernacle, chapters 25 through 31. If you're in Exodus chapter 25, we're just going to read the first nine verses to get a sense, an overview of what's coming in the rest of the text. So Exodus 25, we're getting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skin, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. 
there's a lot in these chapters. Obviously, I'm not going to read seven chapters, and there's no way that we can go through verse by verse in seven chapters. And in fact, I don't think you'd want me to do that. When you do a Bible reading plan, and you start off the year like in Genesis, and you get into Exodus, this is kind of where that kind of grinds to a halt, right? To where it starts to slow down, because you get these elaborate instructions for building the tabernacle. So I'm going to do with this passage, what we've done the rest of the passages in Exodus, that is give us the big picture. So there's three things I want to focus on today as we think about the tabernacle. Think about three functions of the tabernacle in the Old Covenant. The first thing we want to understand about the tabernacle is that it was a dwelling place. The tabernacle as dwelling place. In the tabernacle, God dwelt with his people. You look back at verse 8 that we just read. He says, God says to Moses to say to Israel, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And if you turn over to chapter 29, verses 45 and 46, God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So the tabernacle was God's dwelling place. In Hebrew, the word tabernacle in its most basic sense just means dwelling place or habitation or residence. It's the place where one lived. In the Old Testament, while the word can oftentimes refer to a person's a person's dwelling, whether it be a tent or a house, the word can also be used to refer to a tomb, to refer to the, the final resting place, if you will, of a corpse. But the most the most often the most use the greatest usage of that word applies to God. The word tabernacle usually refers specifically to the place where Yahweh lives. First in the tabernacle and then later on when the temple is built in the temple. In Exodus, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle, was a tent. And that tent served as Yahweh's temporary home during the years that Israel would wander in the wilderness and eventually settle down in the land of Canaan. So the tabernacle was God's dwelling place. It was his residence. It was his, his home, if you will. Now, the scripture does teach us that God is omnipresent, that God is present everywhere in creation, that he is not limited by space. And many passages in the Old Testament refer to God as dwelling in the heavens or dwelling among the clouds. But at the same time, there are other passages that indicate to us that God really dwelt in the tabernacle, that he did live there. His presence, his very real presence, his true presence, was there in the tabernacle among his people at the same time. God dwelling in the tabernacle tangibly, and at the same time symbolically, represented his presence with his people. God was not removed far away. He was not simply up in the clouds. He was not in the farthest corner of heaven, far away from his people Israel. He was right there near them, very near them, right there in their midst. He was in the midst of the people that he had called to himself, that he had delivered from Egypt, that he had brought into a covenant relationship. He lived among them in order to be with them. That was his purpose. His purpose was always to dwell with his people. So in Exodus 25-31... God provided detail, detailed instructions for Israel as to how to build the tabernacle. So what was this dwelling place like? And how did it tangibly, visibly, and symbolically represent God's near presence with his people? So I got a little over ambitious this week, 
and I have some diagrams and some schematics. They're not great, but they're there, and so we're going to use them. So we can kind of—I'm a visual person, so we can kind of get to see a little bit of the, the visual nature of this. So let's look first at the tabernacle complex. Okay, there are two main parts to the tabernacle complex. The first was the tabernacle proper. So we can get, this is a schematic, and again, it's kind of blurry. And I even bought some laser pointers. I'm so excited about my laser pointers. So can you guys see that? I, I know. Go ahead. Ooh and ah. Yes. I'm impressed with myself today. Forgive me, Lord. Uh, so here we have the tabernacle complex. There in the middle is the tabernacle proper. That's the tent where God's going to dwell. This outer part here is the courtyard. It's all that empty space kind of outside where the, 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 the tabernacle is. That fence, that perimeter that you can see is a fence that walled off the outside from the sacred space, from the actual complex itself. The courtyard was where the people would come in to worship God. That's where they would meet with God. That's where they would offer their sacrifices. They would worship there. They would dwell with God there in those courts. Now, within the tavern, and we can go to the next slide too, Doug. So here's kind of a picture of it. You can see here kind of a representation. Someone, I guess, took what was written in the Bible and tried to represent it as best they could. So here again is kind of the tent that sits kind of in the back of the courtyard or back of the complex, and then you have the courtyard all around. We can go to the next slide, Doug. So within the tabernacle proper, there were two rooms that were partitioned off by a veil. Okay, we can go to the next slide. Okay, I think go to the next one. And go to the next one. Okay, so the first part, the first room in the tabernacle was the holy place. The, the, go back to the slide, or to the front, there, there we go. So here we have the tabernacle uh, itself, and you see there are two rooms here. The first room, the front room, is the bigger room. That's called the holy place. And I think we have another slide that kind of shows a little bit of, yeah, so there you can see, it's hard to see there, but there's a veil that separates the two rooms. So that front room, the bigger of the two rooms, is called the holy place, and that's where the priests would go in to carry out their ministry. They would do the things that God had required them to do as part of their priestly service. Among the items that were in the holy place is the, uh, the if you go back a slide, Doug, among those things in there, you can see there's a couple of different, it's hard, real hard to see, but right there where I'm pointing is what's called the table of showbread. I'll just point that out, because there on that table of showbread, or the bread of the presence, is actual bread. The priests would put bread out there and they would change it out every so often so it wouldn't get moldy. But that table symbolized God's desire to share communion with his people. And we think about the intimacy of eating. One way that we get to know people very closely is to have them over for dinner or to go out to eat together, right? This bread here is not going to be eaten, but it symbolizes God's desire to dine with his people, that he is calling them to come and to eat with him, to, to have a meal with him, if you will. Table fellowship was an intimate act in the ancient world designed to foster fellowship among the participants. So the symbolism of the table of the bread, the table and the bread, points to God's desire to have fellowship with his people. He is calling them to be with him. He desires to sit down with them, to dine with them, to have a meal with him so that they can have, enjoy the closeness of this relationship. Now the back room, you can go to the next slide, Doug, and the one after that. The next slide is called the most holy place. If you're familiar with the King James Version, the holy of holies, that's the literal translation. It's the most holy place there in the tabernacle complex. And you know the, the schematic. So there it is. It's the back of the tabernacle. That's the inner sanctum. That is the place where the living God resided. So if you think of the tabernacle, the tent, as God's residence, the back room, the most holy place, is his room. Okay? So the tabernacle, the tent, is his house but the most holy place is his room. That's where his 
presence dwelt. And since God was holy, since his presence dwelt in that most holy room, no one could enter it. Anyone who would go into that room would die. And if we go to the next slide, we can see there that purple curtain. There was a very thick veil that walled off the holy place. Because again, the priests could go in the holy place. That's where they do their ministry. But the veil keeps the, keeps the priest out of the most holy place because they can't go in there. It is too holy. They will die to come into the presence of a holy God. So that veil was very thick to prevent accidental wandering into that room. Now, the only exception occurred on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That's in Leviticus chapter 16. God would give that regulation later. On that day only, and only after a rigorous procedure of consecration, the high priest would go into that room and make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, within that room, within the most holy place, is the Ark of the Covenant. That's kind of a representation. That's not the real one. I know every couple of years we get a report that it's somewhere in some African nation, kind of hidden, some secretive society has it, it's, it's more than likely lost. That's a representation of what it may have looked like based on the information we have in the scriptures. But this, this Ark of the Covenant was simply a wooden chest that was overlaid with gold, and as you can see, it has a rather elaborate top to it. The chest itself was just a rectangular box, and it would store, it would store several things, but right now it would store just the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. Think of the Ten Commandments for a moment. That's the, that's the covenant. Think of it almost like a contract. That is a witness that shows Israel what God has promised to them, but also reminds them of what they're promising to God in the covenant. Okay? It was a testimony of what God would do for his people and what his people must do in return as they lived in covenant relationship with God. The top cover, as you see the, or, the ornate part of the top, There is actually called the mercy seat. It's actually a representation of some cherubim, some, some angelic uh, figures uh, with wings, and their wings are stretched out. The cherubim in the heavenly realms attend to Yahweh. But what I want to point out here is that this... Uh, oh, there we go. Fading on me. That kind of represents... Almost like you can sit down on it, right? It's, almost, it's called a seat, mercy seat, and that was considered to be kind of like a throne chair. It was actually the place where God's presence could sit, like a king, not just to be present with his people, but to reign over his people. Okay? So God is, that's almost not just a, simply a, a room for God's dwelling, that is his throne room. He is present with his people, but he is reigning over them. He is reigning among them. So this is the dwelling place. This was God's dwelling place. God is present with his people. And in fact, if we were to look at, I've got a schematic, uh, go to the next slide, Doug. As we look at the, how the, the, uh, the, the, the community was arranged, the tabernacle was right there in the very center of the nation, right in the center of the, of the community. The tabernacle, so it represents that because God's presence is there, that God is in the very midst of his people. You can see that this orange or red thing is the tabernacle, and here on the outside of these colored boxes are the tribes of Israel. See how they are centered around the tabernacle? If you read through, I think it's in Numbers chapter 2, there's the arrangements of how the tribes are presented. It's, they're fairly evenly distributed. So there's a, there's a, there's a, you have the tabernacle in the center, and then you have the tribes of Israel equidistant, if you will, from around that tabernacle. 
God is at the very center. God is at the very heart of the people. That's, so the tabernacle illustrates a theological reality, right? That God is at the heart of His people. He is at the center of His people. He is right dab smack in the middle of where they are. He is right at the very heart of the nation. It's as if He is the heartbeat of the nation. That if you were to remove God, that He is so central to their existence, if you removed Him from them, they would be cut off from the very source of life. Their life depended upon God. And that depiction illustrated a, an important spiritual reality that our life, that our being is rooted in the very character and the very person of God. And so God is arranging Israel's community life to make that point to them. That they drew their life from God. They were utterly dependent upon Him. He must be at the center of their nation, of their community. Now, as we read the instructions for building the tabernacle, we must come away with the understanding that God was not making a concession to Israel. God isn't saying, look, this is a good idea, let's try this out. It was always His desire to dwell with His people. God delighted to dwell among them. He did this purposefully. This was God's intention again when He made the covenant with Abraham several hundred years before, 400 years before He delivered them. Long before Israel ever appears in the narrative, God determined to dwell with His people. In fact, God intended to form a people that He could live in covenant with and that He could dwell among. And He would reside with them, not from a distance, but right there in their very midst. In fact, this desire, this intention of God, even goes beyond Abraham. It goes back to the very creation itself, right? God created human beings for what purpose? To have a relationship with them to live in that relationship and be among them. If you read the story of creation, Adam and Eve, right? In Genesis chapter 3, verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, we get the impression that even though Adam and Eve had sinned, that God comes down to be with them. It seems like that was his regular pattern. His pattern was to spend the afternoon, to come in the cool of the day, to spend that time with them in creation. But when they fell, it caused a separation from God. A schism. That fellowship was hindered. It was obscured. It was broken. So what did God do? Did God give up on His plan? No. God called Abraham. He promised to make His descendants into a great nation. For what purpose? To call them to Himself. He wanted to have a people for Himself. He wanted a people to relate to. He wanted a people to live among. And so later on, we go back to the beginning of Exodus, when God sees Israel in their slavery, He pities them. He breaks Pharaoh's power. He crushes Pharaoh's power. He releases them from their slavery. He brings them out with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm. He brings them through the wilderness up to Mount Sinai. He makes a covenant with them. And then he calls Israel to build a tabernacle so that he would dwell among them. God's purposes are being fulfilled. Even when Israel broke the covenant. So let's fast forward a little bit. Even when Israel broke the covenant, God did not change his plan or purpose. He still intended to dwell among his people. So what would he do to do that? Well, he would come himself. Instead of residing in a temporary tent, he would dwell among them and among us in human form. See, God, in the person of Jesus Christ, took on human flesh and he dwelt among us. That's what John 1, 1 and 1.14 says, right? In the beginning was the Word, was Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We get a 
perfect picture here of who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is truly God. And what did He do in verse 14? The Word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. And that word dwelt in the Greek literally means tabernacled. Jesus tabernacled among us. Not in a tent, but in a human body. Matthew records in the birth narrative that when Jesus came into this world, He was to be known by the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why? Because in the person of Christ, God was dwelling with His people. So God came near to us in the person of Christ. He dwelt among us. Why? Because it was His purpose all along to live among His people in covenant relationship. And Jesus fulfilled His ministry. He, he did this in His death and resurrection. Remember that in His death, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one says that the veil that separated the, the, the holy place from the most holy place in the temple was torn into two. That on the cross, Jesus cleansed us of our sin and He gave to us His righteousness. Why? So that we could enter into communion with a holy God. Why was the veil there? Because God was holy and people were not. So when Jesus died and he, he did the work of forgiveness and He gave to us His righteousness, there's no more need for a veil. It was torn from top to bottom so that we could enter in to the very presence of God. And because He tore the veil and He opened up the way to God, He invites us. He calls us to enter His throne room with confidence to dwell with Him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. That was the purpose. That was the mission. The, the tabernacle here points us to Christ, points us to His ministry. God continues to dwell with us in the person of Jesus. Second function of the tabernacle, and that is that the tabernacle functions as a worship center. The tabernacle functions as a worship center. It was at the tabernacle that Israel worshipped God. Now, the covenant relationship between God and Israel meant that God would live among His people and He would bless them with His presence. He was there to live among them. He was there to bless His people. He was there to delight them and to, to give the overflow of who He is to bless them. But at the same time, Israel also had to devote herself fully to God. Remember last week in the Ten Commandments, they couldn't go off and run after a bunch of other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the only God. You are to devote yourself to me. And that devotion would be expressed in a number of different ways, but it would be expressed primarily in worship. Israel must worship God. That's good because God is worthy of worship. God is worthy of worship on the basis of who He is. God had revealed Himself to be the omnipotent God, the wise God, the merciful God, the gracious and compassionate God to Israel. Those attributes display who God is. God was showing Himself off. He was showing the, 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 the greatness, the awesomeness of who He is. And so Israel, like all human beings, like even us today, when we worship God, we too worship Him for who He is. Even if God didn't do a thing for us, it would be right for us to come in here today and to worship Him. He is worthy of glory, whether we like it or not. Whether we receive anything from Him or not. He is worthy of glory. But we do worship Him because He has done great things for us. 
He has done wonderful things for us. And so we worship God on the basis of what he has done. And, we, and Israel worshiped him on the basis of what he had done for them as well. Again, he had delivered them from slavery. He led them out of Egypt. He led them through the wilderness. He provided for their every need. He made a covenant with them. He had graciously given, him, given them his law so that they would know how to live before him. God had done all these things. Not because he was under obligation. He did them by his sovereign will. He did them by his exceeding kindness. He did it because of his incomprehensible love. So Israel's gratitude alone should be enough for her to come and to worship the Lord. They would worship him because of what he had done for them. So the place where they would do that then is the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the designated worship center. It was the central place of worship. And the rest of the law that God gives to Israel at Mount Sinai would regulate how Israel would worship the Lord. But that worship would take place, we see here, that worship would take place at the tabernacle and only at the tabernacle, at least until the temple was built. Now, the, pro- the priority of worship, the primacy of worship at the tabernacle runs throughout these instructions in Exodus 25-31 and in the, the instructions that are given for its construction. Let me point out two key things that I think help to highlight the centrality of the tabernacle's worship ministry. The first is the bronze altar. I think I've got a thing for that too, Doug. So, if you go back one. So here in, in the courtyard, at the very, the very first thing you come to as you enter through this red-looking door here, it wasn't really a door opening, um, is the bronze altar. You can show the picture there. It's kind of a schematic of what it looked like. The bronze altar was right there at the very entrance. It was right there. That was the very first thing that people would come to as they enter because it was central to what they would do there in the tabernacle. It was located outside the tabernacle proper because the people could come and could offer their sacrifices. At at the altar, the priests would offer the sacrifices, the required sacrifices for Israel. And again, those sacrifices would be given in more specificity in the first part of Leviticus, Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. But let me just categorize those sacrifices into two kind of main broad types. The first kind of sacrifice dealt with atonement for sin. Israel could not worship God as God required unless her sins were first forgiven. And so God provided sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Israel could not worship God because she was sinful. She was unholy. She was a rebellious people. Though God had cleansed Israel by an atoning sacrifice when he made the covenant with her, that sacrifice atoned for those sins up to that moment. It was an an inferior sacrifice. It was an insufficient sacrifice we find in the New Testament, right? It was a sacrifice of an animal. It covered their sins for the moment, but it didn't cover any future sins. So God instituted the sacrificial system so that Israel would continue to have a way to have their sins forgiven. So as a worshiper came to worship God, they would bring the required animal and they would, the priest would present that offering uh, to God for the, for the forgiveness of that person's sins. And this is how it worked, right? That because of our sinfulness, because of an Israelite's sinfulness, they should die. A holy God cannot be with an unholy people. It's an anathema to him. And so what they deserve is not the presence of God, but the judgment of God. And so... God gave them the sacrifice because if they were to come to him in an unholy way, they would die. But to allow them to live, they brought an innocent animal. They brought a victim that would die in their place so that they could remain alive and enter into communion with God and worship God. 
right? So they would offer these sacrifices. It was the animal that would lose its life as the punishment for sin. So God's holiness is still met. But the worshiper would be cleansed of that sin. He would live so that he could enter into life with God. His sins would be forgiven and he would be reconciled to God. Those sacrifices of atonement are offered here at the bronze altar in the courtyard. Israelites could come and bring their sacrifices. They could have their sins forgiven. They could be forgiven of their sins. They could be, they could offer the true worship to God that God required. They'd be free to offer additional sacrifices of devotion and gratitude. They could sing psalms of praise. They could offer prayers. They could present their tithes and offerings. They could hear God's word read and taught. They could, they could worship the Lord because their sins had been forgiven. The second category of sacrifices were those that were offered to God that allowed fellowship and communion with God. These sacrifices would be offered and burned on the altar, but instead of that, the whole thing being burned up, part of, the, part of the meat from the sacrifice would be saved and the worshiper could sit down and eat that meat. And again, in a very symbolic way, it's as if the worshiper is sharing a meal with the Lord himself. He is participating in that sacrifice that has been offered to God. God is delighting in that offering, but so is the worshiper. He is enjoying it. He is eating it. They are sharing fellowship together. So we get, again, the symbolism of these kinds of sacrifices that encourage worship and fellowship. So the bronze altar here is, the, is a key component to the worship of God that took place at the tabernacle. The second key feature that I'll highlight here in the chapters that we've been given is the attire and the consecration of the priests. I think i got a picture of that too up there, Doug. Okay, and particularly the, the high priest. The instructions are more for the, the garments of the high priest. God chose the priests to mediate worship on behalf of Israel. They were set apart. They were, there was a certain tribe of the Israelites, a certain clan from that tribe that were set apart so that they could offer worship to the Lord. They mediated for the people. And so while all Israel was to be holy, both in worship and in daily living, the priests were also to be especially holy. And their holiness was communicated in two ways. The first was by their dress. The high priest stood apart as the worship leader by his dress. The priestly garments consisted of, I'm not going to point them all out, but they're up there, an ephod, a breastpiece, a robe, a coat, a turban, and a sash. Each of those components reminded the priest of God, uh, reminded the priest that the God he served was holy and that he was serving on behalf of the people to represent the people to a holy God and to confer God's blessings to now a holy people through the sacrifice. The second way to sort of show the holiness of the priest, to make them stand out from the rest of the nation, was by their consecration. Again, because the priests were mere Israelites, they too had to be sanctified. They had to be consecrated. They were personally sinful. They were human beings themselves. But they were also had to be set apart from the rest of the nation. They were Israelites. But they were set apart for this purpose. So by this act of consecration, with various anointings and sacrifices, the priests were set apart as holy unto God. And then they mediated the worship of Israel before God. They would offer the worship on behalf of the people in the way that God specified. So by their attire and by their consecration, 
the priests highlight the tabernacle's function as the center for worship of Yahweh. Now, supposed to worship Yahweh anywhere else, it's only here. And the priests are part of showing the, the sanctity of the, of the tabernacle. And it makes sense that Israel would worship at the tabernacle because that's where God dwelt. Don't go and worship out way outside the camp. God's not there. God's here at the tabernacle. Come and worship Him here. And so as a regular part of covenant life, Israel would enter the tabernacle complex to worship the Lord. Now, we can just look around, right? 3,400 years later and something's changed, right? We are not worshiping God this morning in the tabernacle. Why is that? Why don't we offer sacrifices like Israel did? Why don't we have some members of our congregation who've been set apart to be priests to intercede for us? Well, because... The one who tabernacled among us is our great high priest who offers a better, more satisfying sacrifice. You see, we have no need for priests because Jesus Christ is our high priest, our great high priest. He perfectly mediates between God and man because he is truly God and truly man. He needs no consecration Because He is already perfectly holy. He offered the required sacrifice to atone for our sins and reconcile us to God. Why? Because He laid down His own life as that sacrifice. And so we offer no more sacrifices. Aren't you glad for that this morning? Aren't you glad that we don't have blood and gore and stench of animals having been brought in here today? Why don't we do that? Because one sacrifice has been made and it's sufficient. There's no need for more sacrifice. Jesus... His sacrifice paid the penalty for all of our sins and satisfied once for all the wrath of God that was against us because of our sin. By His sacrifice, we are reconciled to God so that we might worship Him and live out that relationship which He has has called to us in the new covenant. So if Christ is our high priest, and if He has already offered the necessary sacrifice, we don't need to assemble in the tabernacle. Or the temple. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't need to assemble in a special sacred space. Why? Because again, it's already been fulfilled. It's been done. We now assemble in Christ, who is the true tabernacle. And where is Christ present? Right here. Not in this building, but in the gathering of His people. What makes worship possible, what makes Christ present is the fact that we as his body have assembled here together. So it doesn't matter if we meet in this building or out in the parking lot or out in the retention pond. It doesn't matter if we meet in this, at this address or at Tequesta Park or the Civic Center or in one of our homes. The place does not matter. What matters is that Christ is present, that we gather together in Christ and Christ is present with us as we gather together by his Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say in Matthew 18:20? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. One, two, three. Got it. 1 Corinthians 3:16, Paul says, "Do you not know that you, y'all, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you collectively as a body?" So when God's people come together, we worship the Lord together. Christ has mediated on our behalf the necessary sacrifice so that we might approach God and worship Him. 
And so we do that. We gather for worship. We sing songs of praise. We offer our prayers to God. We present our tithes and offerings. We hear God's Word read and proclaimed. And we dine at His fellowship table. The location is irrelevant because we have already entered into the tabernacle. The tabernacle which is Christ Himself manifested in His people, the body of Christ. And so it is right that we worship God. We've assembled together for that purpose today. Is that why you came? Are you doing that this morning? Are you worshiping the Lord by coming to be present with His people? Have you prepared yourself for this? We have a divine appointment every Sunday at 10.30. Not because that time is special, but because of what we do at that time. Have you prepared yourself this morning? What did you do this morning to get yourself to meet the living God? What did you do last night? What did you do this week? You have a standing appointment, a divine appointment to meet with the Lord every Sunday at 10.30 to worship Him. So if that is our purpose, then how are we doing? How are we preparing? How are we acting as we are here worshiping the Lord? So the tabernacle is God's dwelling place. It is the worship center. Finally, the tabernacle last function is, is a, a, that of a future promise. The tabernacle functions as a future promise. The tabernacle foreshadows our eternal dwelling with God. Again, despite its solid construction, its beautiful adornment, the tabernacle was never intended to be a permanent structure. The tabernacle was designed to last during the, the duration of the wilderness wandering year and the early period of settling the land of Canaan. Uh, the earthly materials, though, were going to eventually corrupt or fade or wear out. And even more, God intended Israel to build him a permanent residence. We see that in Second Samuel when God promises to David that he would build, that, that David's son would build a more permanent place, a more permanent dwelling for God, the place that we call the temple. But even the temple would be subject to decay and to destruction we know over the years of Israel's history, it would be defaced and it would be plundered. And finally, it would be destroyed in an act of God's judgment against his people for their sin and rebellion. That judgment was not so much the destruction of the building, but it was the departure of the presence of the living God among the people. Go and I don't remember. It's the book of Ezekiel. I think it's Ezekiel 11. Go and read that very vivid picture of God's presence lifting up and departing from the temple. Again, it wasn't the temple that was important. It was the presence of God. That was the judgment that God was removing himself from his people. He was breaking fellowship with them. But both the tabernacle and the temple pointed to something greater by which God would dwell with his people permanently and eternally. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, the writer there says, they serve He's speaking about the things in the tabernacle, the priests, the, the different furniture pieces. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, and he's quoting from Exodus 25, verse 40, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So the, the tabernacle was a copy and a shadow of heavenly realities. It shows us God's true intentions for outworking his relationship with his people. God emphasized their exact specificity with regard to building the tabernacle. We read that in chapter 25, verse 9. Exactly as I show you according to the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, 
so shall you make it. Why be so precise? Why be so accurate? I've, I've done some remodeling work myself. I know some people that have done some. And especially if you're a hack like I am, I don't really even do it that well. There are places where you kind of fudge, right? It doesn't have to be exactly perfect. Nobody's ever going to see that part or that piece, right? God says, make it exactly according to my design. Why? Because the design points us to something that is heavenly, that is permanent, that is spiritual, that is real. These things that we see in the tabernacle were to be a continual reminder of what God was going to do with his people. And so God, throughout the instructions in several places, makes sure to say, build this exactly as I have told you. Build it with exact precision. He even gave his spirit to Bezalel and Aholiab the master craftsman of Israel, so that the product would actually match the instructions that he gave. The tabernacle served as a continual reminder to Israel of the transient earthly nature of life and worship. But it pointed them also with a longing hope to a future glory where the earthly and transient become spiritual and eternal. And we see that picture in Revelation chapter 21 Verses 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will tabernacle with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. God's eternal tabernacle is with man. And just as now God dwells with us in the person of Christ, so in eternity God will dwell among us, His people. There will be no need for a tent. There will be no need for a temple because we, we will be the dwelling place of God. There will be no need for sacrifices or incense or washings. There will be no need for priests. The veil has been torn and God will tabernacle with His people forever. Brothers and sisters, is this what we long for? Is this what our hope is? Do we earnestly desire the day when God will dwell with us? The early Christians often prayed a simple prayer. Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus. That was their hope. That was their longing. Is it ours? And if that is our, if that is our longing, then how does that impact the way that we worship? How does that impact the way that we live right now on a day-to-day basis? Because we are already living in these eternal realities by faith. And so we should live faithfully according to them by the Holy Spirit until that day when our faith will be sight. When we ran from God in our sin and rebellion, God drew near to us and He set up His tent. He tabernacled among us in the person of Christ. Through His priestly ministry of offering Himself as the perfect sacrifice, we now draw near to God in Christ to worship Him and to live out all that God intends for us in the new covenant. May our hope and our longing be for that day When what we do here by faith becomes our true and real experience by sight. And so we pray, as with our spiritual forebears of old, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus.
Let's pray. Lord, I don't know if this morning, if that's what we intended to say, if that was our prayer coming in. We may have been praying for any number of good things, any number of selfish things. Lord, I pray that this morning as we come to your table, that our prayer would be, Lord, come. Thank you that we can dwell in these realities by faith, but Lord, come when these realities are known in full. They're known in complete design. They're known perfectly. Lord, help us to long for you. Help us to to seek you and to yearn for you. And until that day comes, Lord, help us to live faithfully. Help us to seek you in these days. Help us to walk with you in these moments. Help us to worship you, Lord, as you have called us to worship you. Thank you, Lord, for your son. Thank you that you would condescend and tabernacle among us. Thank you that that tabernacle would become the place where we would dwell. Thank you that he would be our great high priest. Thank you that he would offer the sacrifice so that these things we've read and studied this morning, Lord, become true and real to us. Help us to dwell with you, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.